Welcome to Toronto Under Construction, a podcast about everything Toronto real estate. Welcome to Toronto Under Construction, a podcast about everything Toronto real estate. We are back inside. We got a little bit of rain outside today, Steve. Yeah, this is what I call mitigating risk. Mitigating risk. You know about mitigating risk. That's for sure. So you're you're back and got another wedding to go to. You're back from uh, overseas. I was in La France and, uh, you know, Ben, you'd be proud of me. I used the bike lanes daily. Oh, I thought you were going to say that you didn't get drunk at the wedding. <laughs> well, that obviously I didn't do that. <laughs> um, no, but but the bike lanes in Paris and, and all through France are quite substantial. It's almost like when they were planning the cities thousands of years ago, they were like, later we're going to need bike lanes. <laughs> we should have big wide streets where we can have big curbs and you don't feel like you're going to get hit by a car every time you're on a bike. Yeah. But we not only did you use the bike lanes for bikes... You know what we did in Paris? We scooted around oh, everywhere. I love the scooters. Yeah, they had the, like four or five different companies. But with uh, the Uber app, you just scan the Lime scooter. I think they have these same ones in yeah. L.A. And basically, you can go anywhere in the city for five bucks or yeah. five euros. Yeah, that's and it's, awesome. It's efficient. It's about the same amount of time as taking the subway. But you're seeing the city. And yeah. You're on the bike lanes. Yeah, ben. I used it. I used it in Dallas, which was like awesome. I'm like, I love this. Yeah, I mean, they're trashed everywhere, but I'm yeah. like, man, yeah. this is worth the risk. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's. Uh, I, I enjoyed it, and I thought that uh, Brad Bradford in particular would be happy to know that we were biking and scooting in <laughs> these uh, plentiful bike lanes. Yeah, we've had a we have had a lot of cyclists on our show. All right, they are keeping the world of spandex alive. So speaking of spandex. <laughs> Oh, wait, hold on. <laughs> no, I'm the one that does oh, yeah. the bad transition. So um, the sponsor of the show is the Plus Group is comprised of five distinct companies. RN Design, SRN Architects, Salesfish, Sales Software, Kool-Aid Studios, and Studio Uno ID, offering services in marketing, architecture, interior design, and real estate software. Their mission is simple revolutionize the real estate industry through efficiency, innovation, and quality while adding value to the client experience. For more information on the Plus Group or any of their five companies, visit theplusgroup.ca. We've got an exciting guest who I just met for the first time today, but feel like I know him through his uh, active active Twitter account. Yeah. And uh, looking forward to speaking with Mr. Chris Spoke, who owns and manages a digital product studio in Toronto called August. And he invests with his, with his brothers in renovating and building duplexes and other missing middle built forms, and now also a mid-rise apartment project. He's a graduate of the University of Ottawa with a Bachelor of Social Science, Economics, and Public Policy. In 2017, he founded a housing advocacy group called Housing Matters and is a key figurehead in Toronto's YIMBY movement. Chris worked as a development manager for the Benvenuto Group, an owner and developer of rental apartments as well as a condominium apartment where he helped entitled to launch the Monza Condo Project on St. Clair Avenue West. Chris recently launched BuildStack, an online directory of trades, consultants, and other organizations involved in new housing developments. I think I got most of that right, 
maybe not in the middle. <laughs> but it's <laughs> great title, to have you here. Entitle and launch the the Monza Condo project, which is uh, currently under construction. Now, it I is. Believe. Yeah. Believe. No, you nailed it. Um, Anyways, welcome to the show. And of course, best best known for being active on Twitter. So all, all of that is kind of like secondary <laughs> to my yeah. Twitter feed. I, I, I'm not gonna count any of this i like some of it but twitter stuff every question on here is about a tweet you've made so <laughs> yeah. I, I knew i'd have to be uh held accountable for for each of them when i wrote them so let's do it so, so you, you obviously you've had you've had a pretty uh interesting career you know a few side hustles so why don't you tell us about you know obviously it's a real estate podcast how you ended up in the in the real estate space yeah so i started paying attention to housing issues, like housing policy issues. Around 2012, 2013, there was a great book written by Matty Glacius called The Rent is Too Damn High. And it was the first, as far as I could tell, it was the first book that took on the Yimby argument that for housing to be more affordable, you need to build more housing. And it really resonated with me. I, I, I studied, as you mentioned, economics in undergrad, and then just started paying attention to, at that, at that point, kind of like slowly rising prices in Toronto. I was working in software. I worked for a number of agencies and startups. Um, then around 2017, I think you'll remember there was like a spike in prices. It was an especially uh, expensive year. And that's when I started looking around to see if Toronto had a YIMBY group so that I could participate in, maybe volunteer for or something like that. I'd seen some of these groups emerging in the Bay Area in California. So San Francisco, you know, infamously has very expensive housing. And they kind of pioneered this idea that you could be a housing advocate that doesn't just maybe advocate for rent control or something like that. You could be, you could have more market oriented solutions. Uh, but Toronto didn't have any Yimby groups at the time. There was a website, I think torontoyimby.com, but it was about doing things like hosting farmers markets in your backyard and that sort of thing. It wasn't, it wasn't kind of this modern use of the term Yimby. A little different, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and for, I think the, the audience probably knows what Yimby means and what Yimby is, uh, but basically it's an acronym. Yes, in my backyard, it's like a counter to a NIMBY sentiment that opposes new real estate development, which is, which is not in my backyard. Yeah. So Yimby's uh, are generally uh, of the opinion that, you know, if we want more people to have homes, we need to build more homes. Uh, so because concept. it wasn't, what a concept. <laughs> I know, I know. Whoa. Why you solved everything. What's, what's, what's interesting <laughs> is, you know, 2017 is when I really got involved in hosting events. I had this organization called housing matters back then. That idea was not like, it was not consensus. Not only was it not consensus, it was like actively controversial that building housing was one way to relieve rising housing prices. It was just like not agreed upon. And now five years later, it's shocking to me that it's still it's, not agreed upon. But I mean, it's much more than it was then. I was listening I to uh, Steve Clark was in committee this morning um, facing questions. I guess I, I'm not familiar with the process around um, giving strong mayor powers to John Tory and, and Watson in Ottawa. And even the NDP and the liberal, uh, it was it was Mary Margaret McMahon from from the Liberal Party, and I forget the the NDP member of provincial parliament. But they were both kind of agreeing that uh, we need mayors to be generally more yimby than councillors. That strong mayor powers are going to move the debate in the right direction. So just to hear every party basically agreeing that you need more of a yimby sentiment and more housing development, like that that would not have happened in 2017. But but you know. I think that's kind of like a positive so, trend. So what happened now. between when you read the book and, and in 17, when you really figured, saw, saw the price hike and you were just sort of like, what clicked? And you're like, hey, this, this I got to get more involved. Yeah, I mean, it was a combination of things. One, one I was just, uh, I was by then, I guess in my late 20s. So, you know, looking for something else to do after work other than, than just kind of work all the time. Um, 
I was also just very curious about real estate. I'd worked in software for a long time and, and the world of software is, is fun in its own ways, but frustrating in one way. You could spend, you know, a couple of years, evenings and weekends working on a project that, you know, two years later gets deprecated by the client because, you know, they're launching something new. So I was always interested in the idea of building something in the physical world that stands the test of time that you can point to, you yeah. know, with your kids, or your grandkids down the line. Um, so I, not that I entered this with any professional ambition, but it was just an interesting space to explore. And then I, I generally like diving into issues that are somewhat contrarian at the time. So again, this was pretty contrarian at the time. So I thought like, okay, this is not currently being served by the existing organizations. Let's create something new. Um, and I guess to tie it all up to where we are today through that organization, I met a bunch of people in the industry. It was my first introduction to what it is that real estate developers do. Um, got a job offer with a mid-sized developer in the city and then did that for three years, which takes us to January of last year. Uh, when I quit, started running my day, my agency, which is my day job, um, and, and working on a few projects of my own. So, so why, why quit the developer to work at an agency again? I mean, the, the first reason is that I, I just don't like having a job uh, or a boss. So uh, I, I, I very much enjoyed my job. It was a great job and, and I had a great boss. But um, yeah, I think it was just the time was up. I was there for three years. I think I learned a ton um, and I wanted to uh, put a, put some of my own skin in the game and see if I, I like could it. have a go at it. I like it. So now, awesome. you're, now you're doing some stuff with your brothers as well. Yeah, I've got two brothers, both pretty entrepreneurial. Uh, one in Vancouver, who's uh, actually a project manager for PCL. So he's been doing construction for. 15 plus years um, and another in in Toronto who's the CEO and founder of a fintech company and yeah we're working on a few projects we've got uh, one cool mid-rise scale in around Lower West Village um, that we could talk about we've just gone through a committee of adjustment process with a, a four to one vote in our favor that's now being appealed by a neighbor and I've got a ton of opinions on, on how broken that process <laughs> is um, and then another one is a mid-rise site in like South Etobicoke that we're rezoning, you know, first, and then, you know, we'll see what, what happens after that. Cool. Awesome. You. So, uh, you know, I, I roll a question here. I mean, there's obviously so many places we can start with. You're, you're, you're a man of uh, many wisdoms, but uh, I wanted to, you know, stay with, stay on kind of the, uh, the Yimby tract. Um, you know, one of the events that you had, you had uh, Alan Berto, which is, uh, you know, a city planner, a number of global cities. I think it was probably the most interesting event that you guys put on. And certainly he was a, you know, an interesting guy. He describes cities as labor markets. You know, why do you think, and I know that you think that's an important idea. Maybe you can expand on some of his his ideas and, you know, your own spin on it. Yeah. So he, so Alain Berto is, uh, is the rare urban planner who's read an economics textbook. Um, and then, so he wrote his own book called Order Without Design, talking about how cities are emergent, right? You know, they can't be thought of as like a mass, like a big master plan community. They're really, you really just have to create the conditions for, for good things to emerge and then let, let, let them emerge usually through private um, actors. So he now works for, or at a think tank called the Marin Institute. We hosted him for a talk in Toronto, which was his first speech, I think since releasing his book, uh, just, just one fun kind of anecdote of that event. We, I put two tickets aside. I had, it was a priced event. It was like 25 bucks, but I put two free tickets aside, one for Tori and one for Greg Lintern and Tori did not show up, but Greg Lintern did, which I thought was, was fun to have him kind of listen into some of these ideas. Um, so yeah, so Alberto says that cities are primarily labor markets. Um, 
which means that like the, the main reason why you would move to a city is for access to a bunch of job options. Everything else is kind of secondary to that. The fact that we have good restaurants and good nightlife and all that stuff is kind of secondary to the fact that you really move to a city and live in a city because um, it's close to where you work. Um, the reason why I think that's important, I mean, his book is half about housing policy and it's half about transportation policy. I think it's really important when you think about the transportation policy side of things, because often how we think of and talk about and plan for transportation in cities doesn't really account for, does it get us to our destination any quicker than, you know, alternative options. So we talk a lot about things like um, road diets, like removing car lanes and putting in bike lanes and that sort of stuff, which I'm generally all, you know, supportive of, but it's not being, it's not being discussed within the context of like, does this improve mobility generally within a city? We talk about congestion and we say, you know, there's this concept of induced demand. If we keep adding lanes to roads, congestion won't get better. It just means more people get on the road. But the other half of that ledger is that there are more people on the road getting to where they need to go. So it does increase throughput. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't know how, how, how much in the weeds you want to get with that, but I think that uh, the way Alan Berteau puts it is like once someone's commute, one way commute reaches about an hour, it starts breaking down and the city starts unbundling. So if you live more than an hour, let's say from downtown Toronto, you might look for a closer job, you know, in Mississauga, North York or Scarborough or wherever. And it just makes the market smaller. Um, and a smaller market is one with less specialization in trade and probably one that's less productive and less innovative. So... Yeah, I think when we talk about housing policy and transportation policy, we need to start from the first principle of what is a city and why does a city exist? Yeah. And, and, and again. Yeah, I think I think part of the reason we, we started to get the high prices that we did or the acceleration in the type of prices that we did is we expanded to the max that we could in terms of sprawl, mm -hmm. right? Well, we added the green belt and then we, we, we started to push up, you know, we'd, we'd, we got, you know, Mississauga was completely built out, you know, a lot of uh, Milton was built out in, in South Brampton. So it started to get to the point, if you wanted to live in Toronto, you could no longer you know, move to a new home, right? Yeah. And on the on the outskirts and be able to get, to get there. And I think that was one of the reasons that we started to get the, you know, the crazy, uh, you know, price growth. And we've talked about, you know, uh, before, when you, you switch from a wood frame, low rise product that can be built one or two houses at a time to a high rise buildings that are concrete construction and seven stories underground and take six years to to build so significantly more expensive on a on a cost per square foot basis it's only going to make things more and more expensive right so i don't know if there's a question there but the six years is like a key point wood frame construction is cheaper than steel or concrete frame construction but a lot of the cost comes through process right as we know and it comes through like Everything from your your rezoning to your official plan amendment to your, to your site plan approval that you need to go through. And that is really a policy decision. That's just not like a function of what materials you have to use. So the path of least resistance has been sprawl. And now that we need infill because we've reached our limits of sprawl, um, it's not just that the construction is more expensive. It's also that we have these processes that are shaped by NIMBY forces that make it, you know, take longer and cost more than it otherwise should. Yeah. Can, can I just go back? I, I am curious on, on your uh, on your thoughts about <clears throat> transportation, because I feel like one of the biggest problems with big cities, but Toronto in particular, is how we're all going to get around, how we're going to move around. And, and yeah. literally, you know, like practically speaking, I just did come back from France and you look at the, how wide the streets are, how big the bike lanes are how good the, the the subway lines are, the way you can move around that city. There's so many different ways. And is it congested on a day-to-day on -day basis? Yes. But is it 
much a much larger space with more places to go and easier to get to absolutely and i just feel like i'll preface it it's an old city like paris is in comparison to toronto is like an old man and you know we're like we're like a young buck just getting started but I just, you know, you come back, I got off the, the plane and I'm coming on, you know, from the airport along the Gardner and you get to downtown and like, we're, there's condos on both sides. Like you're not creating more lanes there. Yeah. And and it's already brutal, you know, traffic in and out of the city on, on any given day, any, at any given time. Like to me, like this is the biggest problem we need to solve to, to deal with housing in the, in Toronto. And I'm just yeah. curious to like your, your thoughts on, on all of it. I think so. So I'm going to actually restate some of the um, cities are primarily labor markets with with a little bit more structure. So first, cities are primarily labor markets. That's why people move to cities. Second, the larger the market, again, the more opportunity you have to specialize in trade. So in a city like Toronto, you can open the most niche, let's say, restaurant or consultancy um, because the market is big enough that there will be some some demand for it. Um, I'm trying to think of a good example. Let's say we have these like, I don't know charcoal ice cream shops, right? In Toronto, there's going to be a lineup and it could be the weirdest thing. I don't know, like uh, yeah, like Brooklyn a sweet has, potato charcoal ice cream shop. Yeah, so, yeah. There's going to be a lineup around the block because there are enough people in this large market um, that want sweet potato charcoal ice cream that they'll, they'll line up for it. If you were to open that shop in like Wawa, Ontario, uh, you might go out of business because there, there aren't enough people. So the larger the market, the greater the opportunity to specialize in trade. And ge- that generally means more productivity, more innovation, and ultimately more GDP growth. So that's why bigger is better, like for this specific reason. And I think it's that's an important reason. And then again, bigger is constrained or size is constrained by commutes because that's when you start, you stop wanting to work in Toronto, you know, past a certain point. If we're all driving till we qualify, I might still work in Toronto if I live in Etobicoke, maybe if I live in, in Mississauga, probably not if I live in Burlington. Um, but that commute distance is one, a function of just geography, like how far do you have to travel? But two, like to your point, your transportation options. Yeah. If I could get, you know, downtown in 20 minutes and it's the same distance, um, you know, at, at midnight, but but on, during rush hour, it's an hour, then it's not just that the distance has increased, but, you know, all these other factors have come into play. So I think that this is an underrated problem. I think housing is relatively easy to solve. We just need to upzone and liberalize land use rules. Like we know what we have to do and we can talk about that. Like, why aren't we doing the things we know we have to do? Transportation is more of an engineering problem, and I think people aren't yet kind of caught up on on how big of a problem it is. Um, when you mentioned Paris, like the fact that Toronto is a younger city than than a lot of European cities, that should, in, to some degree, make it easier for us to build out infrastructure because there's less like heritage considerations, there's less existing stuff in the way of building, let's say, more subway tunnels. But if you look at cross city comparisons, North Americans generally. And this is certainly true in Toronto. We pay something like four to five times, like four to five X uh, more per kilometer of subway than comparable cities in like Southern Europe, Northern Europe and, and East Asia. And again, that is why mostly, is that? It's, it's mostly a series of policy failures. Um, there's a long there's a long host of reasons. I encourage everyone in the, in the audience to check out um, Alon Levy, A-L-O-N, last name L-E-V-Y, who researches this and kind of has this itemized list of, of reasons why that is the case. But one of the reasons why it's the case is the way we think about changing anything in cities involves a lot of community consultation, which involves a lot of politicization, a lot involves a lot of NIMBY pushback, and ultimately leads to kind of less efficient way of, ways of doing things. So one, one example on that track, it's much cheaper and quicker to do cut and cover subway construction than tunneling. 
but cut and cover is more disruptive. So the counselor gets involved and says, I don't want that. I want a tunneler that's out of, out of sight, out of mind. Um, and then this process that should have been determined by engineers is now like Politico. And you have, you know, Josh Matlow or whoever saying, no, we're not doing cut and cover along Eglinton in my ward um, because my constituents don't like it. And then we just make these bad decisions that make <laughs> makes everything possible. I just drove along Eglinton this weekend and I feel bad for some of those businesses on, yeah. on the north side. It's like impossible to get to their places of business, right? Like you can't, obviously you can't stop in front of them because some of them are just completely uh, blocked off, right? We, so, I just want to go back to this. Though. So this is very interesting because you you're totally right. And this, this exact problem applies to everything in the city. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it's not just subway creation. It's, it's housing. It's, it's, it's a number of different issues, but like, how did we get here? Because you, you made a comment. You said, why aren't we doing the things that we know that we need to do? Yeah. Like, like, why aren't we doing it? Like, why, yeah. are, why are we letting Josh Mallow have a say on anything? Like other than like the small, you know, like uh, you yeah. know, what, what, what color slide is going in his park? Because yeah. like this, like for him to ha opine on anything to do with how the subway is built, it's, it's a bit crazy. It's it's beyond crazy to me. And not not to pick on him, beyond but just crazy. like you know, a counselor generally is just not what their training you know has led them to be experts on. The short answer is democracy, and we could unpack that. But um, I will say that on some dimensions, a bit of this is getting better. So even the way that Metrolinx is handling the Ontario line construction, they've passed a few some legislation. I think it was called like the speeding up transit infrastructure bill or like some, some name like that. <laughs> and most of its provisions were peeling back community consultation and, and avenues for community appeal and things like that. And it's basically saying that there are some overriding priorities that just need to be pushed through without every neighbor having an opinion and an opportunity to slow it down. So yeah, the short answer is democracy. We've basically decided that um, any change in the physical world. And again, this is, I have one foot in the physical world, the other in the digital world, where I don't have to ask anybody permission to do anything. Um, anything that requires a change to the physical world um, requires sign off basically to some degree by the people impacted, whether it's, you know, because there's going to be more traffic in their neighborhood, a new shadow impact um, or whatever. What this framework does not account for is future participants and future residents and future citizens that don't have a voice in this community consultation process because they don't live there yet. They're, they might not be born yet. They might not have immigrated to the country yet. So it's basically a system that rewards the status quo and rewards incumbents at the cost of new entrants, new generations, right. whatever. Right. It's, it's just, you listen to the people who have the most time on their hands, the most money and, uh, yeah. <laughs> and the and most angry, right? That's basically how we, we set policy is, is who, how does this least impact the people that are going to vote for me? Yeah. It's, yeah. Almost, it's almost like the, like the path of, of, uh, uh, of what's the word I'm looking for? Like least, least, least resistance. Yeah. yeah. Like it's like, okay, you're, you're the mayor and you're like, well, how do I keep everybody happy? Okay. Let's go down this super easy. And I think that's probably one of the biggest criticisms of Tory. I mean, he's, he's been a great mayor, but it's sort of like, how do I keep everybody happy? And I think part of the problem with democracy, it's like, if I keep the most amount of people happy, I'll get the most votes and I'll win again and I'll keep my job. Yeah. Because if you're a 25 year old who can't afford to live in Toronto, so you move out to Hamilton, uh, you don't, you don't vote in the mayoral election one way or the other. So that's not a vote that a mayoral candidate has, to, has about. to worry about. Right. Right. Um, what's frustrating to me is we generally know, you know, more so today than five years ago, that this is a problem, that this like is the specific problem that like NIMBY um, participation in these processes is the specific problem. And we have mechanisms to place less emphasis on their on their input. One mechanism is to have the provincial government dictate more of these things. And they are to some extent. It's just been frustrating to me that they haven't done more. I think one thing that they're doing that that is 
hopeful is giving Tory, who will probably certainly win re-election, stronger mayor powers, which gives him, I think, a little bit more room to maneuver because he no longer has to create this winning coalition of 25 counselors. Well, he does to pass bills, but he has more levers at his disposal. So he could he could reward more of his allies uh, with appointments and he could punish more of his opponents with like vetoing whatever they want to get done. So I'm hopeful that this is not going to solve the problem, but like at the margin, John Tory having strong mayor powers should be able to take these citywide priorities and force them through like local ward opposition. Yeah, I mean, hopefully he does it. I, I think it's, it's he's, he's such a nice guy and I just get going back like he seems like someone who just wants to keep everybody happy. Yeah. And and I think being the leader of a great city or a great country or, or any great leader, like you should have more enemies than you should, than you have, you know, yeah. supporters. And it's a very difficult thing in politics. And it's really like to build and you can, you can, this is, I'll, I'll turn into a question, like to build what we need here, you basically need to piss off 95, 99% of the city. You have to, <laughs> yeah, because we need more density and a whole bunch of low rise uh, neighborhoods. Yeah, and, and we need it on, on transit. We need it in the in the places where nobody wants it. And the councilors have protected them. Yeah. It used to be that you could build Greenfield, no NIMBY opposition because there's literally nobody there. Then for some time you could build, um, you know, build up parking lots downtown. Again, very little NIMBY opposition because nobody lives in the entertainment district in, in the year 2000. Yeah. But yeah, now there's everywhere you build, there is somebody who's going to be upset by it. So you either stop building or you just stop listening to these people. And I'd, of course, rather stop listening to these people. So many uh, urbanists are obsessively anti-car and anti-highway. Um, but do you think there's a place for more highways or even underground car lanes? Oh, yeah. So this is this is where uh, I get canceled by my Yimby, you know, people. <laughs> these are my people. But they, but they, this is where they cancel me. <laughs> <This question. laughs> so... Again, the first principle is that cities are primarily labor markets. The bigger the market, the better for reason we, we, reasons we've discussed. And then the way to make the market bigger is by making it faster to get from point A to point B, where usually point A is where you live and point B is where you work. And um, depending on where that point A and point B are located in the city, a car is still often the best and fastest and most comfortable way to get from point A to point B. When you, did you say a city or this city? Well, let's say, well, Toronto specifically. If yeah. you live in like Rexdale and you work in East York, there's no great transit option. Right. Well, the, or at least like the trans, transit will take at least twice as long as, as, a car. as a car. And I think a lot of Yimbies just just like don't want to grapple with that fact. And a lot of, a lot of Yimbies, to be fair, are young and live downtown and work downtown and don't have kids and stuff like that. So they just like haven't faced the practical realities. But cars are, I think, I think cars are, are great. I think cars bring a lot of bad things to cities like traffic congestion, pollution, you know, until Elon Musk uh, electrifies all of our cars. Like there are limits to what you could do with cars. One of the reasons why I have limits is because, you know, to, to answer the second part of your question is because all of transportation is happening at the same layer you know, uh, 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 with, with the exception of subways, which are happening like one level below grade. And there's a great book by this author, Jay Storrs Hall, called Where's My Flying Car? And he, the whole book is about <laughs> where's my flying car? And he explores like all the reasons why we don't yet have flying cars. And he has experience as like a microchip designer. And he's like, with this much density, it make, like there should be 10 to 20 layers of transportation within cities, which is a pretty sci-fi thing to think about. But I do like the idea of Elon Musk's uh, boring company yeah. exploring, you know, we'll see, maybe it's a horrible idea, but he's exploring the idea 
of building below grade car lanes. Um, and this is a way for us to expand the road network that doesn't compete with other at grade uses, including houses and all this other stuff. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's a cost, it's a function of cost. Like it's potentially, you could have as many layers as you want below grade and your only constraint is cost. And that's of course what his company's trying to solve. So I would, I would love to see, you know, below grade car lanes. And if those cars are electric and autonomous, then, then it probably works even better. Um, yeah, it would, but, be, it would uh, be a, a parking situation and, uh, how do you get the people to grade? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's where the bottlenecks are going to be. I generally think with transportation, we need more of everything include, I, look, I love cycling. I cycle most days to the office and back. Um, I love cycling. I love walking. I think first of all, the best thing you can do with transportation involves land use policy. You just let more people live downtown, right? Upzone, like there are parts of downtown like Baldwin Village that are still less dense than, you know, North Rexdale, um, which doesn't make any sense because that's been within very close proximity. So where, where Baldwin, Village? Baldwin Village is like between Spadina and University south of college. Oh, really? So there's this whole pocket there that's extremely low rise. It's like two stories. To the west of Spadina, you have the Alexander Park redevelopment. South of Queen, you have Entertainment District, of course. Yeah, yeah. On college, you have U of T, which yeah. they're doing some stuff, but you're kind of constrained. And then I think it's like east of McCall, you have a lot of the stuff along the university, but there's this pocket that's just completely kind of frozen in amber. Um, so, so yeah, like the, the, the best thing you can do for transportation is just let people live closer to where they work. Um, but that aside, you just, I think you need more of everything. And I think often that means more highways. I think like if you, again, if you live in Brampton and you work in Vaughn, um, like you're going to drive to work and I don't think there's any reason why we've reached the perfect number of highways and car lanes today, um, that we should never build anymore. Um, so again, these things have to be examined on a case by case basis. I don't, I don't think I'm dogmatic in any direction. I'm just certainly not anti-car dogmatic yeah. i think I yeah think you need a bit of I, I, I mean we uh, to get people out of your car it, it needs to be a more comfortable way to travel on public transit like i love taking the go train yeah i would never drive downtown if i was going to a jays game or a yeah. release game or raptors game or whatever because it's a, just a it's a it's a nice way to travel all right yeah. but you know i took the subway every day to work for for a number of years and uh yeah it can be a pain in the butt it's like yeah. five o'clock on a friday it's just absolutely just jammed yeah i have a little bit of advantage i'm because of my height i'm like <laughs> above the fray right yeah. like the people are all below me but if i had my face in someone's armpit uh, the entire way it's just not i mean i even had a guy like try to fight me on the subway once all right yeah. so <laughs> and or you drive you're on a the worst part is when you're in a streetcar and it's like negative 40 degrees and you're going along and then the guy's like everybody off we're just short turning this don't worry there's one right behind you and then you get out and wait then you wait there for like half an hour yeah no, or but, comes but, and but, but he's like, stuck anyway so that was not getting through yeah, and there's yeah, a pile of six streetcars yeah. in a row yeah, well, to, to, to like reclaim some of my urbanist uh credentials uh i do think we should have congestion pricing i do think that cars get a free ride to some extent because we don't we don't price congestion we don't have like road tolls i think one of the better cities at all of this is singapore which has an excellent subway system so it runs very well nobody ever tries to fight you on the sub you don't you can't even, you can't even drink a bottle of water on the subway in, in singapore you get fined on 500 bucks oh yeah yeah why so they, they, what, what they, they the take cleanliness to like an extreme level like singapore has been described as disney world with the death penalty and the death penalty is how they ensure it remains uh disney world so you know again not getting to that but they have an excellent public transit system, a good road network and congest it's fully congestion priced. So you have like a tracker in your car 
And it's more expensive if you're driving in rush hour than in the middle of the night and downtown versus, you know, outside of downtown. But it just means that you have this proper cost calculation. And, you know, if the congestion price is really high during rush hour, that kind of nudges you to take the subway or something like that. And it works very well. And I think, again, you have to kind of approach these things without, you know, an ideology or a religion to it. But just what is the most practical way to get as many people to be able to get as far as possible or as quickly as possible to their place of work, um, you know. Not, not to double down too much on the transport, just really quick answer. Do you think, I, 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 know, I think I know your answer, but do you think there should be a toll on the gardener? Yeah, I think, I think this, I, this might be a bit extreme and maybe, you know, someone smarter than me will, will point out a reason why it's not a great idea. I think we should toll every street in the city. Like you should have a tractor. The, the, the toll might be free if you're driving, like say on this street at this time. Uh, there's nobody on the street. So there's no reason why there should be a cost because you're not kind of boxing anybody else of the street. But I think you should pay for your use of road space. And I think that should not just be like- Just for cars? What about for bikers? If you're using the bike lane? Yeah. (laughs) The reason why you have congestion pricing, like there's two reasons. One is as a revenue stream, but that's not why I think it's interesting. You could, there are other things you could do for revenue, but two is to manage congestion. So to the extent that a bike lane would get really congested, I don't know, it's a good question. Maybe maybe that starts coming into effect. I don't think that's a problem in Toronto and certainly not yet. If anything, you know, people say that bike lanes are are often too empty. So I'll I'll, I'll stick with it like okay. no ground. So when I worked at Young <laughs> and Summerhill and I would have a meeting with with some people that worked at Young and St. Clair, they like drive to my office. Mm-hmm. And I would be like, Dude, it's like one subway stop, or you could just yeah. walk, right? Yeah, yeah. I was like, well, what if well, I don't want to miss a call? <laughs> so that's the, that's well, that's the type of person that we need to. Yeah, uh, well, listen, I would be the guy. I would nudge. be the guy who'd probably drive that distance, but my excuse wouldn't be I might miss a call. So we'll leave it at that. I, I, we got to stop talking about transfer. I got, okay. I got a, okay. another question Let's for go to you. housing or whatever. Yeah, we got to get into housing, and, and I'm going to use this as a segue because I really I really like this. So you have. a and I like we always talk about Twitter, Twitter references here. So you've pinned a tweet at the top of your Twitter account and it says you should be able to raise a family in Toronto on one income. Yeah. So I just want to know, I'm like, what is that income? Sure. And and how and what is a family? Is it one kid, 20 kids? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like <laughs> there, there's a lot of variables there that yeah. I want to and, and I want to use it as a segue. This is getting into housing and policy and and uh, and yeah, that I'll answer it in like a roundabout way, uh, which is that. I think there's some sort of expectation or or like a generally agreed upon truth that big cities have to be really expensive and they have to keep getting expensive every year. And I just don't think that's true. I think, again, that's a policy choice and largely driven by the fact that we've allowed NIMBY forces constrain new housing supply. I think that is like by far the biggest reason. And there's a vast empirical literature to support that. So I'd like to go back to the idea of there was a time when you could raise a family on one income in Toronto. And yeah, let's call it, I don't know, the median income. Uh, I don't know what the median income is today, but like a middle-class firefighter, let's say, you know, to pick a profession out of a hat or a teacher should be able to have a wife and two or three kids and be able to live in Toronto. And that's currently not the case, not without a lot of outside help. Um, and I think it's too bad. And I think that that should be like the overarching political objective of anybody who runs for office in Toronto or in Ontario um, is to make that true again. I think families are important. I have, I have a young family. Um, and I think cities are important. And I think that we should have more families in cities. I mean, I go to Trinity Bellwoods every now and then I'm, and I'm struck by how little diversity there is in terms of ages or like, you know, types of people, everybody there is between the age of like 20 and maybe 40. Um, and none of them have any kids. If you go to a park in like Brampton, 
you'll have a grandmother walking with her grandkids. You'll have like all sorts of extended families. And I just like that energy, like a, an energy where you have families in cities and cities aren't yeah. just kind of places you go after university before you have kids, then you're back out to the burbs. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I think it's it's deliberately a bit vague, but I do think you should be able to raise a kid on one income in Toronto. Well, I think there are families in Toronto, but they're they're typically rich or or they or they haven't moved yet, right? Or they, or so. they have two incomes, and it might be three incomes. One of them might be pulling a night shift. Yeah, yeah. So, well, before we get into a little more policy, I do have another question about about Twitter because I I, I liked your answer that you you gave to to a response. So. I was talking to a CEO that owns a number of real estate brokerages and we had a good laugh about, you know, the the mouthpiece uh, realtor in our industry that seems to get all the media coverage. Can we uh, say his name? Is, is that allowed on the podcast? <laughs> yeah, say it. We, say won't, it. we won't say his say name. It. He doesn't deserve to be uh, to be named. Yeah. And basically just his, he just gets so much interest on Twitter because he pisses both sides off, right? He says enough yeah. stuff to piss the bears off and enough stuff to piss uh, the bulls off. So he gets that engagement, lots of, lots of likes and lots of uh, retweets and lots of comments. Um, and, but he also wades into, you know, new housing, which he knows absolutely nothing about, which makes me just so angry when he yeah. comments on things that he knows, knows nothing about. But was he said something about, about why he does it. And I don't know if you, if you, you remember what you said. Why he, why he like tweets in this matter. Yeah. yeah. It's, I think it's content marketing for yeah. his realtor business. Yeah. Yeah. I think this is the role he plays. You have a lot of people in Toronto with homes who've had their homes for a little bit of time. They all think of themselves as very progressive and welcoming to new immigrants and to new generations, but none of them want multi-unit housing in their backyard, right? Yeah. This is a NIMBY problem. So how do you reconcile this? There's a cognitive dissonance. I'm a good person, but I also don't want renters in my neighborhood, which is a bad thing. I think a bad opinion to hold. So he gives them an out. He says, no, housing is not expensive because of you. It's expensive because of immigration or low interest rates. All these things that do kind of factor into prices. Speculators. But he's basically, yeah, speculators. He's giving them an out. Uh, you know, you typical Toronto nibby that will fight to the death at the Committee of Adjustment. If anybody proposes a triplex next to you, um, you are still a good person. You are still a good progressive. Um, and and that's that's his role is to, is to kind of make them uh, be able to sleep comfortably at night with that thought. Yeah, that's it's interesting. Yeah, Twitter is just a it's it's a cesspool. And, and, and I, I think the only reason that I haven't quit is because then I let the uh, then they win. <laughs> then they win. Right. So yeah. I just so you, I tell my wife when she, she says get off my phone and then they win if I get off my phone. Yeah, and then they win. <laughs> I can't let them win, so I will still still keep calling out the uh, the, the the guys that said something. You know, there's been people have been on there for ten years saying the same thing over and over and over again, right? Yeah. Well, it's also there's more academic literature on this stuff than ever before. There's as close to a consensus in economics as like on any topic that I've seen that if you restrict new housing supply through zoning ordinances and other things, housing prices go up. And if you remove those rules and if you liberalize a little bit, um, you have downward pressure on prices. So, yeah. so yeah. like, like that's like the core question is like, why is no one reading this? Why are we buying into it? Like, why aren't we, why aren't policies changing? Because it's such basic economics when you yeah. really think about it. It's like literally you go and take an economics class in high school. Like they talk, talk about supply and demand and like I, can give, and, I can give a few reasons. But, but I'm, sure, just, uh, I'm sure I'm sure. I just, I just, it's so frustrating. I, I just, I don't know if there's ever, you know, like I, I, without becoming a dictatorship or a monarchy in, in the current democratic world or environment we live in, like how do we make 
these yeah. major changes. I mean, the reason why basic economics doesn't really factor in is because urban planners literally don't study basic economics. It's just not part of the curriculum. And this was the point that Alan Berto made in his book. You could talk to a city planner who makes decisions on rules and regulations that would make housing either more abundant or scarce, and they don't understand how those decisions impact prices. It's like a foreign concept. So I think that's that's the reason. And I think you're, you know, you're right that you ultimately need you know, at one level, less democratic participation, right? You don't ask every neighbor if they're okay with a triplex in their neighborhood. So you have less democracy in that sense. But in another in another sense, it's actually more democratic to let the market kind of do its thing because developers only build housing in locations that they think, you know, there's a high demand for housing, you know, in, in that location. So, so like they have to some extent better feedback loops than the politicians or their urban planners do. Like I know if I build a triplex here, Someone will move into it because if they don't, I'm going to lose my shirt on this project and I'll, I'll never be able to do it again. For an urban planner to say, actually, we don't think that there's any demand for housing here. There's no real kind of accountability or feedback loop baked into that opinion. So I do think you need a stronger figure like the premier of Ontario, like the minister of housing, Steve Clark, like, you know, someone along those lines. I would love for there to be a housing czar. You know, you talked about a dictator. Let's yeah. call it a czar because czar, <laughs> czar. <laughs> czar sounds cooler. Uh, you need a housing czar to basically um, like step in and overrule council decisions that limit housing supply. I think we might get a little bit of that. And, but and who's, who's, who's the one, who's the person to do this? Like who's going to make this happen? It has to what be provincial. Steps need, what steps need to be taken from today forward to make these changes happen? Yeah. I mean, the good, the good news is we pretty much know we have 55 good ideas, like specific ideas of what we should do, right? The province commissioned this housing affordability or formed a housing affordability task force just before the last election commissioned a report that had 55 recommendations on how to liberalize land use rules and other things speed up processes to make market rate housing more affordable. And anyone who kind of knows this stuff, who read that report, I don't know, I don't know what you guys think if you read it, but like it was it was awesome. I thought it was really great. The ideas were really solid. I was surprised that they were as bold as they were. So now the province is sitting on this. They have this on a shelf and it's up to them to pass legislation to enact all of this, all of this, this stuff. And it might happen. I think we have the right government. They have the right temperament for two reasons. One, you know, I, I vote conservative, but I, I don't even think this is like a partisan statement. Conservatives generally lean toward market-based solutions to problems as opposed to kind of like more government. And I think that that's what we need in housing. Two, uh, conservatives don't really get elected in cities. So if you're going to do something that upsets all the Toronto NIMBYs, it helps if you don't rely on them for votes to get reelected. Um, so I think like for those who, and then just generally, I think Doug Ford has this temperament where he wants to flip tables in Toronto. He's done it a few times and I think he'd be happy to do it again. So why why hasn't it happened yet? You know, maybe maybe if we had this interview a month from now, we would see a strong housing bill in uh, in Parliament. We ha- we we don't see it yet. They've done some good stuff. There was Bill One Hundred Eight in twenty eighteen, Bill One Hundred Nine, the More Homes More Choices Act or whatever. But these are all kind of like baby steps. I think we need to take these fifty five recommendations that they commissioned. It was their own task force and passed legislation to make it happen. So a funny story on uh, on that. So I was asked to participate in that housing affordability task force in in one of these Zoom meetings which I was which I was happy to do. And uh, the report was great and you know obviously if we did a lot of those things we'd be in much better shape. But let's just say one person was uh, a certain a certain realtor was critical of of the people that participated yeah. in that process. Yeah, yeah. And then I posted a tweet uh, that showed that he was invited to 
the same Zoom meeting that I was yeah. and chose not to participate. Right. So did he like that? <laughs> yeah, I don't think he liked that tweet. Uh, and probably uh, it, it's just funny because it's like critical of the people that were asked to participate and you were asked to participate and chose not, and chose to. not to. So so there's no you, you should not be talking about who was. Yeah. And the criticism is always like that developers are involved with the process. I think one of the reasons why this debate is so like we are still, you know, in some circles in Toronto debating whether or not building more homes leads to there being more homes for people. Like that's how low IQ the debate is. And I think one of the reasons for that is the people who know most, which are developers, because this is what they do professionally, they have skin in the game, don't really say anything. And they don't say anything for political reasons. They have files that are being reviewed by city staff and it doesn't help that file. They have fiduciary, you know, duty to their LPs and whatnot and to their lenders. And uh, it doesn't really serve them to start whacking off on like how city planning does what it does. So you have a debate that's completely dominated by activists, by urban planners and by realtors. And uh, we're missing like, I think like not only are there are there not too many developers in the debate, we need way more developers in the debate. Yeah, I'd, I'd make a developer the housing czar, of course. Like, who else? Yeah. It's uh, another funny story. So whenever I go to these real estate events that I that I go to, I do a, a Twitter thread and, and talk about the comments. It's happened to me before and it happened again. The last event I went to, one of the developers on the panel called me, yeah. asked me to remove one of the tweets in the thread because they didn't want yeah. someone that was a politician to read that and yeah. misconstrue it. And it's the right it. move. That's the right move. Right? The right move is to cover your ass because ultimately you need to keep your job and like, you know, pay your kids for their for their shoes or whatever. <laughs> and, and this sort of like political activism is, is like, is left to the amateurs. Yeah. No, and right. even... Even when a developer gives money to a political party, they just get crapped on yeah. in the media. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So yeah. you know the, another funny just just and you're totally right. Like, I mean, if you're a developer, you absolutely have a fiduciary duty to your investors and to your partners and to your lenders and to everybody involved, right? And you gotta get the project through and you gotta get it built because you also have a duty to the buyers who bought the, the yeah. home. So like you gotta deliver. Like, yeah, you gotta deliver it. But um I remember during, you know, the the thick of COVID when the whole uh, mass debate was going on and the um, vaccine debate was going on. And there was sort of like the, the one group was saying, you know, let's let's go to City Hall and let's go to Ford and push forward to sort of like loosen the straps a bit here because the rest of the world has done it. And I was talking to a few developers, but like we can't 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 have opinion can't do anything that would piss off Ford. Yeah. can't say anything against him have to vote for him have to sponsor all those things because he's pro-development and because he's pro-development we're yeah. going to get our projects through faster it's going to make us more money and it's going to keep the lights on yeah and it's just like it's and it's it's so deep and in, in yeah. our, in our so there's control. like a self-censorship that's pervasive and that leads to people who don't know what they're talking about doing most of the talking there's this great account on twitter that i'm sure you've seen you maybe you've seen it as well steve it's called um, it's a housing trap. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I seen it. yeah, I'm really curious. <laughs> so th this, this person, um, it, it's at, it's a housing trap is, you know, pretty obvious from my reading a developer cause they know exactly what they're talking about and they get to the core of every issue and, but they have to be pseudonymous, right? That's the only way it works. Yeah. So you either don't say anything or you have to kind of like put on a, a fake pen name. And you know, I I'm, I'm okay. I'm okay with that on one hand, but on the other hand, I'm kind of sick. And I think everything I was actually, so we've, we've got into the, the equity business and we've got a couple of projects now that we're developing. We've got application in for a two towers site uh, in North York and another one downtown. So I've always looked at urban Toronto and like sort of realized that there's forums and blogs, but I've never really gone and read them. Yeah. So, 
one of our sites we're redeveloping, you know, a heritage cultural center and nobody likes it, obviously. Well, actually not, I didn't say nobody. Half the people don't like it and half the people like it. But it's it's just a bunch of like unanimous, like like nobodies with these like avatars of them, yeah. like like some like ninja fighter <laughs> yeah. arguing. I'm, I'm like, I, how do I how do I even engage with you? Like yeah. who you are? Who are you? Right. Like I think there should be if you don't have a headshot and your first and last name on any social forum, you shouldn't be allowed to speak. I, I disagree, and I'll tell you why. If it was Jeff Kettle, the head of Fontra, I don't know if you, if you know who that is. He's like an infamous Toronto NIMBY. I don't think it would the critique would be like any more valid. Um, so I think you would just have a lot of people that are proud to show their names and say, I hate So this. then do it. Then show your name and yeah, tell me fair. who you are. Because but, the thing is, like, you're like in some unsophisticated note. Like, I, I actually think that these, like, going back to your point, you're saying yeah. this person obviously knows what they're talking about. They're sophisticated. They're drilling right down to the point every single time. Like, that to me, if this person is... Who you know? Let's make up their the CEO of a, of a top ten developer in the city. Like, let them speak and like speak. And if it, it, on the, on the contrary, if you're some kid in your parents' basement opining on like, you know, like <laughs> a, a three million square foot futuristic yeah. master plan community in in South Mississauga, like. Don't make sure Shut up. The problem like, is like I wouldn't even respond to you. I should delete you off the thread and you shouldn't like. Yeah, I agree with that half. What I'm saying is on the other side, that person would not tweet yeah, under their real name. It. Yeah. So you, they would just be, they would just exit so the conversation. That, yeah. And no. it would just be again, dominant. And this is again, one of the reasons why I run a digital agency is to, is to, you know, make sure that uh, in between real estate projects, my, my kids keep getting new shoes. But the other reason is because I need like some level of sanity where not everything <laughs> is political. Not yeah. everything needs 10 rounds of reviews with like um, city staff that have never done the thing that I'm doing. And uh, we've allowed it to become so politicized that, yeah, you, like you, you have to play political games. Yeah, it's, it's difficult. The people always attack your credibility. Even when, you know, when I when I ran Urbanation, it was like, well, you're only saying that because the owner has a brokerage firm that sells condominiums. Right. Oh. And uh, so when they disagreed, when they disagreed with what I had to say, then, you know, it was biased because, you know, my clients are developers and yeah. and, uh, and 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 Eve Lewis owns this, you know. Uh, sales company, but then when Urbanation starts saying stuff they they believe in, then, then you're a good guy. Then, then you know ben it's, it's well, you know, after I had I had left, you know, uh, I think Urbanation was getting a little bit more bearish in some of the right. stuff that they were putting out. You know, uh, maybe that's just me, but yeah, that they were getting quoted more, and this whole ten thousand units canceled. It got a lot of play yeah. in the in, in the media, and and everyone quotes quotes the numbers that the, the, if it paints the market in a, in a, in a negative light. But, uh, there anyway. was a, there was a study that I read. It was, it was on change in the abstract, like not any specific change, but just on change generally. And the people kind of pulled or surveyed for the study were all generally okay with change or a large percentage of them were, unless they were made aware of the change happening before it happened. So, <laughs> and like to kind of like bring this to the conversation, like most people would not know what development project is happening in their neighborhood or down the street or down the block or whatever, if it were not for the fact that as part of the city mandated process, you have to send them a letter to say, hey, this is happening and we want your opinion. So make sure you show up to this church basement and let us know if you hate it, yeah. right? That is baked into the process. So one of the one of the recommendations in the Housing Affordability Task Force report, this is for missing middle scale projects, which I'm you know, specifically interested in is any project with fewer than, I think it was 10 units, whether you need a official plan amendment, zoning bylaw amendment, site plan control, whatever, there's no community consultation, there's no public meeting. 
And I think you just need fewer avenues for these people yeah. to participate yeah. in the process and share their opinions. What do you think about like community groups getting together and pooling, like especially in call it like wealthier neighborhoods where there's more means to pool together large amounts of capital to fight developers. Do you think that's something that I, I find there's like some, it just drives me nuts. It's like, let's yeah, like, it's, there's a really wealthy street yeah. and their backyards are on uh young street or DuPont or Spadine or whatever the street is. So they're like, you know, we all have a hundred grand to throw in and we're just going to fight these guys tooth and yeah. nail. And I've seen it happen. I've even seen the community groups say in public meetings, I was at one and they're like, we will, we will not stop fighting or spending money until we destroy you. Yeah. yeah. Quote <laughs> yeah. to a developer who was like a really nice guy. who was just trying to like make a living and well, like build is, some they nice. They would argue the other point that the developer is the one with the, the, the big yeah. pockets that can afford all the lawyers. This is baked into the official plan, right? If you're lower income, you're more likely to live in an apartment neighborhood, like the land use designation apartment neighborhood. And if you're higher income, you're more likely to live in neighborhoods. In the official plan, any new development in a neighborhood is expected to reflect and reinforce the existing physical character, which is not true in apartment neighborhoods. I live in High Park. I live in a high rise. There's another one going down the street, which, you know, I'm, I'm very happy to see. But like baked into the official plan is, you know, indirectly, the richer you are, the less you should be subject to any physical change of, of, of like your neighborhood or where you live. It's a disappointing process. <laughs> I, I, I did. I did. I, did have, I don't even know what to say to that. I did have a, a, a comment here, uh, you know, getting back to that, uh, you know, people discussing your credibility. I saw that Mr. Gord Perks took a shot at you on, on, on Twitter, you know, and, and uh, years was, ago. Was, yeah, I was questioning your your conservative leanings. You know, does do you think that, you know, Gord has done, you know, damage to the to, to the progressive movement or has hurt housing? You're, what, what do you you want to opine on him at all? Well, <laughs> you got to say he's my by the way, he's my counselor. Oh, yeah. And I have a I shouldn't even say that I have a project in his ward was too late. No, uh, but um. <laughs> The, the, the full context was I spent these years from 2017 to, tw well, really just a year and a half to end of 2018 doing this kind of like local municipal YIMBY activism. I would show up to City Hall. I would do deputations. I would host um, meetings and we'd bring out experts, including Ben, to talk about how this stuff works to people who are interested. We'd go to public meetings. We'd go to like public meetings for projects and be like the only supportive voices in the audience. Um, but then it struck me like at the same time. The wind government passed this bill, Bill 139, that devolved and basically gutted the OMB, reintroduced rent control, which, you know, we could we could set aside. But even that one move to gut the OMB, that one change undid any sort of positive progress I could have made in a decade going to like deputations. So it, it hit me that like the only way this is going to happen is at a higher level of government. I need to get involved in provincial politics. I was, you know, hopeful that Ford would be more pro-housing than Wynn was, and he certainly has been. So I got involved in helping helping to get him elected in, in, like, my very, very small way. And that's what Gord Perks called me out on, the fact that, like, I was getting involved in provincial conservative politics while claiming to be a Toronto Yimby as if there was, like, a contradiction there. Yeah. I don't think there's a contradiction there. I think that, you know, Gord, mm -hmm. uh, you know, has to contend with the fact that he's got these strong progressive values and he's been a long-term counselor in a ward that's gotten to be only affordable to millionaires. You know, that that's his record. And it's not all his fault. You know, that's, that's not what I'm saying, but that is his record. So, you know, he must understand and recognize that to some degree, the current process is not leading to good outcomes. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, it, it stinks that some people get left behind, but when I think that, 
you know, we could have a project gets built that's 40 stories and has 10% inclusionary zoning uh, at the expense of four or five units that are being housing low income people then that's a trade-off that we have to make as yeah. a city, right? Yeah. And she's the kind of person that says, no, we actually have to save these units and these people can't be forced to move. That's my mandate, right? Well, another thing I got a lot of heat for was, because his his big issue, and it certainly was back then, I think it still is now, is this issue of rent evictions. You buy a house that has really kind of ugly, torn down, worn down units, and you renovate them, which means that there's this process where you could kind of boot them out. They have a right to return, but generally you're like, you're, you're producing nicer units that would rent for more per square foot or so. They, from more under per the bylaw, they're allowed to come back at the, the rent that yeah, they had before. But, but right? this, so I wrote this article for the Globe and Mail, and um, I don't think I came up with the title. I think the editor did. But it's to get to have, if we want more affordable housing, we need to build more luxury condos. Yeah. And the world went nuts. <laughs> and, and the logic is like the reason why people are going through the brain damage of renovating a rooming house and is because there is high end demand for high end housing. That's not being satisfied. If we build a, if we flood the market with luxury condos, there's less of a business case to renovate a bunch of people out of a rooming house and build high end units because the market's flooded with high end units. Yeah. So that, I was trying to like basically explain the second order effect of blocking and preventing luxury condos from being built. Um, I don't know if it registered, but yeah. For most people, most people that don't. Did you get beat up pretty bad over it? I got, yeah. By, by, at the time, again, I was doing this Yimby thing and I was trying to build, and again, I should say for the record that I wasn't good at it. I'm not good at like consensus <laughs> building and coalition <laughs> politics. So I don't want to put this on anyone other than myself. There's a new group in Toronto called More Neighbors Toronto, and they're way better at it than I ever was. Um, so, you know, everybody should follow More Neighbors Toronto and get involved with what they're doing. I just wasn't good at it. But Shout out to Eric because he's doing an awesome Eric job. Eric Lombardi, there. the founder, is awesome and super smart and they're doing a great job. Uh, but when I was doing it, I was trying to, you know, reach out to all these other housing advocacy groups. We have a shared interest in Toronto being more affordable. Your approach might be to advocate for rent control. My approach is to advocate for upzoning and that sort of thing. But, you know, we could we, we at least like agree that housing is too expensive. It should be more affordable. Um, so, you know, this article basically like burned every one of those bridges. Cause like this fucking guy, you know, we want housing to be more affordable, but not if it means we have to build any luxury condos. That is not, you know, consistent with our principles. So, yeah, you know, I mean, the, what, what happened recently with, uh, or still happening because Steve knows I've talked about it. I bought a van, yeah. yet I still have not got it. So I bought it in July of last year. So this lack of new cars being built caused this huge increase in the cost of used cars. Wow. Yeah. Whoa, I wonder that. how that happened because <laughs> yeah. these people that would have been buying new cars have bought a used car instead, yeah, yeah. you know, pushing all these other people yeah. down the, the, the ladder. Right. And, and just people cannot understand that concept, right? You buy a used car because it's less expensive than a new yep. car. But if we don't build new cars there today, will be, yeah. there will be no used car for you to buy in seven years from and now. There's a natural experiment in this. The uh, Cuban trade embargo made it so that no new cars were entering the Cuban market. And of course, like everything's communist and there's no private property. But the black market for cars is like an old 1970, like shitty Oldsmobile was super expensive because <laughs> they, stopped, they stopped being new cars. Wow. I was, uh, a few years ago, I was moderating a, a panel at the Empire Club and Anna Bailao was one of the panelists. And she explained this logic. She she like explained the musical chairs effect and all this stuff. And I was blown away that, you know, not that this is a complicated thing, but that a counselor kind of knew it and understood it and internalized it and it affected her outlook on housing. And I was very impressed 
Um, but I've never heard, I think Brad Bradford is excellent. There, there are a few good counselors, but generally like there's no strong incentive for them to understand that logic because if they were to understand that logic, they would have to tell their NIMBY constituents opposing a project who are saying, oh, and by the way, it's not affordable anyway, that no, even if it's not quote unquote or capital A affordable, it still contributes to housing supply and it still puts down repression yeah. prices. Yeah, it's interesting how you, you're you not allowed to discriminate against a lot of people, but rich people you are allowed to discriminate against. <laughs> yeah, it's just, you know, yuppies, you're allowed to discriminate against them. We don't want them in our neighborhood, right? It is kind of interesting that... that well, the, 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 yeah, but at yeah, 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 the same time, you know, I don't know, you can go to some of these, these like yuppie neighborhoods and... <laughs> no, like, the big, like, the big like, trick is that the, the luxury houses are not the new condos being built, you know, for 750 square feet. The luxury houses are the ones that the people opposing that project live in. <laughs> I know. That's the craziest thing. <laughs> yeah. Look down the street yeah. from where we are right now. There's 26 units. The average size is probably 3,500 square feet. And yeah. everyone in this neighborhood threw hundreds of thousands of dollars to oppose it. It's like 26 units. It's a beautiful building. Yeah. But any of you have talked about it like Young and, or not Young and Sinclair, Young and Summerhill. It's like a low rise, low rise in every direction, really. There, yeah. and it's, it's. I think it's Matt Low there. No, it's. Uh, Where's this? Sorry, Young and Summerhill. Young and Summerhill. I don't and, know. And, the, and the it's just all, all like the counselor. I forget reading this article. It might be. Yeah. Yeah. Like he's like, my constituents don't want any density. It's like yeah. you're on a freaking subway line. Like no, we've so, we've somehow like I mean. You know, to some extent, it's the industry's fault because luxury is a marketing term, so it helps you kind of you know sell your your units. But the real luxury is a detached house. Like that is the luxury. Like, yeah. And, and I have nothing against you. Like we, we just need more of, more of all of it. But I think there's this, like, there's this fake debate where like the poor downtrodden homeowners who've seen like 300% appreciation over the last 10 years um, are the ones that are being like victimized by luxury condo owners who can never buy their house. Yeah. So, so let me ask you a question on, on all this. What, what is the one point or the one, the key topic or the one policy that just really you know what really, you know, uh, Family Guy, you know what really grinds, grinds my, my gears? gears. Yeah. <laughs> what really grinds your gears? You know what really grinds my gears? Because there's like a lot that grinds your gears. But I just want to know, if you had to pinpoint one thing throughout all this. I guess it depends on how specific I have to be. What's, what's if, if COVID to Bill Gardner is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what, what is this shut policy? Up, shut up Bill Gardner. Yeah. Um, I'll pick a niche one. Like the problem with this problem is that like you need to solve 50 things to solve it. Like there is no one thing, but if I had to pick one, I would pick the use of FSI as a constraint on development. So FSI stands for floor space index. And if you're building, let's say a missing middle project, you might have a site that allows for 12 stories, uh, sorry, 12 meters of, of height, which is four stories. It might allow for 17 meters of depth. It might require, you know, 1.5 meter setbacks on either side. And then you put this massing together and you have like a nice project. Oh, but it's 0.6 FSI, which means that you take the lot area, only 60% of that could be your GFA. So you have, you have like form-based zoning that determines the height, the depth, and the width when you account for the setbacks. But then we, for some reason, have this extra thing that we layer on top to the, like further cut that down, which is FSI. So I think FSI should not be used in planning. I think it should just be killed. And actually, there's a there's a report that was produced, and I was I was very impressed by the city planning department as part of this EHON, Exploring Housing Options in Neighborhoods program, where they they basically anticipated or or considered like that FSI might be an outdated metric. And there's a city planner. I don't know if saying his name it will like be good or bad, but Greg Hewins at the city, I think, is like an excellent city planner. And, and I think he was the one who's been championing this. Um, so there are there are good city planners. And uh, yeah, so I would get rid of the FSI. I think we should start a new segment on the show called 
You know what really grinds my <laughs> gears? You know what really grinds my gears? <laughs> we could, yeah, we can do, do that Joe Rogan length episode you know, just, just on that. Okay, so so uh, you were actually a builder too. So maybe you can give us a little. Uh, you're working on a four story project that you call your forever hold. Yeah, uh, you touched on it a bit at the start. Uh, you know, how's it going, and what are the, what are the issues that you're dealing with? Well, let me let me tell you what really grinds my gear. You know what really grinds my gears? <laughs> yeah, he Here gets we it. go. He gets Here it. Here we go. This project. An excellent project that I'm working on with my brothers, but, but a couple other pro, uh, partners in the neighborhood. We could build to 12 meters as of right. The it's, a, it's more of a major renovation than a ground up redevelopment. The existing ground floor is a bit elevated above grade, which means that for us to get our three meter heights on each of these floors, we needed a variance to go to 12.8. Um, it's an extremely minor variance. We basically, you know, we went to the committee of adjustment. We passed all four tests, which if you're a planner, you know what that means. Four to one decision in our favor that this is a great project. It's not in a neighbor. It's on a mixed use, uh, land use designated strip, um, commercial residential in the zoning bylaw. The variance was approved. Um, so let's submit our working drawings and go to building permits and get our DC notice or development charge notice so we could lock in our rate and not be hit with this big hike that's coming in May. Um, no, somebody appealed that decision and for a few hundred bucks to file an appeal, this could potentially, depending on how long it takes, have like a 150, $200,000, $250,000 cost impact because we might trigger the development charge increase. We're carrying this, this thing, right? So we're paying our debt service costs to people like Steve and, um, and there's construction cost escalation through the whole process. So this, this kind of like asymmetry where if you're a neighbor that's opposed to a project, it costs you a few hundred bucks to impose a six figure cost on a project. And this is a very small project. If it was a bigger project, it'd be a bigger impact really grinds my gears. And this is not like a standard court of law where if we win the appeal, which I am convinced at T-Lab we would win the appeal because I understand the planning. Um, it's not like we could counter sue for costs. Yeah. No, that's it's just, it, it is what it is. Yeah. And you know, he yeah. took a shot, he threw some some sand in the gears and, and it is what it is. Um, that is that, it, but that, but again, going back to like giving constituents, giving neighbors, giving like anybody a say in planning and letting them Put well, a, one of the housing affordability the, task yeah. force recommendations crazy. was to make the appeal cost $10,000. So, you know, yeah. say it with your chest. If you really feel strongly about it, put some dollars behind it because these things all have cost impacts. Or a, percent, or a percentage of, of you know, the build-out form or the land cost or whatever it right. is. Like, make it, you know, like in fairness, 10 grand is nothing if the land purchase was $70 million. I, I'm doing a small project, yeah. but yeah, yeah, the, yeah, same, yeah. The, same, the same kind of concept. Um, and I know you're, we're trying to pivot to talk about like real estate. I keep going back to like Yimby, <laughs> Nimby stuff, but okay. So putting that to the side, um, it's a cool experience. This is like the first thing I've done. Well, second thing I've done since, since, um, being out on my own third thing I've done, I did a, a really cool land assembly. We did a build a duplex and this is the third thing. And, uh, it'll probably be five, six rental units and a retail unit. And, uh, I'm enjoying the process and I'm trying to document it a little bit because, I also think, you know, the process is so opaque that you need an army of consultants, even for a small project, to even know, you yeah. know, what it is you're supposed to do. And even they often don't know. And they're like, I don't know. Like this just changed last week. So enjoy the, <laughs> I, I'm both enjoying and being frustrated by the process. When you say document, are you documenting it just in literature and video or text? I, I have a newsletter once a month. I send out like, this is what we did this month. It's chrispoke.substack.com. Um, and, but even then, like, I thought I'd be a lot more transparent um, with like everything that's going, but, but then you realize you self-censor because it is still political and you don't want to jeopardize outcomes by like saying too, too many things too early. 
So, but I, but I do think that, you know, hopefully the province will make legislative change that allows for much more missing middle type development across the city. And I think it would be cool if that were able to be done by like young entrepreneurs and, and even like builders, as opposed to just like pedigreed and, uh, and like, you know, well-established developers, like this should be, I think, you know, it should be more open to like scrappy builders and not just someone who has a planning degree or has a planner on retainer or something like that. It should be more accessible, I think. So I did I did a market study for a site that you were looking at, uh, Midrise site. Did you ever end up uh, closing on that site? We did close on that site. Where that's the one that's a that's a cool Midrise site that we're taking through um, a zoning bylaw amendment. Um, this this will be the biggest thing I've, I've done on my own. So it'll be it'll be pretty cool. It'll come in probably around hundred thousand square foot of GFA if, if wow. it goes the way we want it to go. And um, now we're talking to maybe a Cameron Stevens loan. Yeah, given exactly. that size. Yeah, well, th- th- yeah. N- this is this is why I was invited on the podcast. <laughs> this is the other one, you know, I would still be just tweeting at the podcast. <laughs> and ben told uh, me he's like, yeah, Chris bought a site, might need like some real capital. Let's get him on. <laughs> I think we were a bit too small. We got a, the 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 lending process. First time I went through like this yeah. type of lending process. We had one lender basically stringing us along, promising great terms, blah, 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 in a way that, you know, frankly, as as a rookie, um, I didn't competitively shop. And we ended up 30 days to close without a letter of interest, let alone an actual term sheet. So we scrambled and um, Frank from... Uh, I'm, I'm, this is terrible. I'm, I'm blanking his name. Francesco, who was oh, that? Frank, oh, yeah, Frank yeah, yeah. Yeah, he, 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 I, I DM'd him on Twitter. I said, "Dude, can you help me out?" And he was, he's been awesome. And he found us a lender, and we closed. And yeah, we're working through the motions. Well, that's awesome. See, see, Twitter yeah. helped you out. Yeah, yeah, right. There you go. So, what's the plan? You actually want to, you want to build it out, or are you gonna, you know, flip the flip it when you get entitlement, or a, a few, a few kind of decisions along the way. I mean, the first decision is, yeah, do we want to entitle and sell, or do we want to build? Second decision is if we build to what tenure, right? Rental versus condo. My general sense is, I'm going to say something that that might, you know, ruffle some feathers in your audience, maybe. (laughs) I've known a lot of developers who take projects end to end. And I've always wondered, like, why aren't more people doing what Diamond Core does? Like, why are they not just identifying great sites, entitling them, and then getting the fuck out? You get, you know, to put a rough number on it, 80% of the lift, you know, through that process and only 20% of the headache. Construction's a bitch, right? A lot of headaches. And I have, I have a three letter word to answer your question. Yeah, well, that's it. So I've asked people that and they've said, I want to put my stamp on the urban fabric and all this stuff. I'm like, this doesn't sound like I'm I'm not, you know, very smart, but this doesn't sound right to me. And then I realized, ah, so the the fee gets applied to the whole project budget. No, no, that's not the word I was, (laughs) the word I was going to use is ego. (laughs) <laughs> okay okay it's well, a, it's and it's, it, it, it's both okay he's actually a really good answer but I'll, I'll tell you it's a great point you bring up and it's shocking to me that more people don't do it because construction is also like a pain in the ass like i yeah, talked to all my developer totally. clients my investors who develop like it's a grind like to build a tower it's four years of hell yeah. dealing with trades and supers and sub trades and yeah. issues and unions and like I could go on and on with all the issues that they deal with. And at the end of the day, yeah, it's a big fee. It's huge CM fees or DM fees, whatever one you call it. But I, I'm telling you, like a lot of these guys, and I'm not going to say who, but there's a group of a family group in Toronto, and they've they've parted ways, and one wanted to go one direction. They had a partnership, and uh, they got to the point where basically, like, they'd zone the site, they'd 
quadrupled their money. They're like, let's just sell this to our partner and get out. And the two brothers, the one brother or cousin was saying like, no, like we got to get her name on the, like, it was like the site was on a, on uh I won't say what highway, but you know, they want, he exactly. wanted, he yeah. wanted, he wanted his, his logo on the crane on the highway. Yeah. yeah, like yeah. He wanted everyone to see it, that he was yeah. building something. And the other brother was like, who cares? We just got our partners like a Forex <laughs> in two and a half years. Like let's take the cash and move on to the next thing. Yeah. So they ended up, you know, going in different directions because one wanted to have a lot of projects with his name on it. And one just wanted to make a lot of money for his investors. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. And, and, and like, you know, fees are not money for your investors. They're money for your, your, your firm. So um, I, I think that's right. And also for us, like we have, no pedigree. We have no history. We have no real clout. So, you know, my understanding of the market, even to get trades to bid on mid rise, because they generally don't want don't to, wanna, yeah. if you could kind of like offer the carrot of a high rise site to get them to bid on your mid rise, you might have a, a go at it. But, you know, most, most we'll, we'll cross the bridge when we get to it. We're, we're 18, 24 months away from that. But I, I like the idea of doing what, this is what I, I know is entitlements. I don't know construction. So I'd like to specialize in that. It's yeah. a great so place talk, to be. I mean, talking to Bob Lazewski, I think uh, from Diamond Corp, you know, that we, we got to a point, I don't know, it was five, six, maybe seven years ago where the, the delta between, you know, unzoned land and zoned land started to shrink a lot, yeah. right? So yeah. people weren't paying and it wasn't worth it as much for them to do that. Now it's starting to yeah. grow again and we'll probably get uh, get even wider as, as uh, you know, there is one, There is one and, other answer and, when, you, when you bring up Diamond Corp and, and just um, from the city's perspective, and I do totally understand the city's stance on this, is what they what Diamond Corp did, I think, like the first or first two or three times is they bought a site, they zoned it and then they sold it. And then whoever they sold it to had their own plans and then like redesigned the building and did something totally different. And basically it was like three years with diamond corp and then another three years with the new developer in the city. So, you know, diamond corp in the next time and city's like, no, like we don't want to deal with you. We don't want to believe in you. Like once the final owner and developer yeah. of the site is going to be submitting their plans, we'll work with that group to right. actually design the building because it's a waste of our time to do it right. twice. Right. So what Bob and, and Steven to, the, to their credit did is they said, okay, going forward, we're going to stay in every deal we do. Right. We're not going to, we'll, we'll, we'll partner with a builder, like a, like a, a, a real developer, but yeah. we're not just going to like, you know, cut ties and move I've on. I've wondered why. Yeah. Cause I've seen that, um, them sticking around longer and that, that's a, that makes sense. Yeah. Cause, cause this is frustrating for the city. This is like, we spent a lot of time and energy and money on working yeah. with you. And like, sure. once we come to consensus, it's going to be like a 25 story building, 220,000 GFA. Like let's design it together. Like don't, don't like bait and switch us sort of thing. Like, you know, right. trick us into saying that you're going to be the developer and then just like take your chips off the table and move <laughs> on to the next one. It's, right. it's, it's, it's not really fair. So well, that, well, what, that's another, another that, and that's not an ego thing, obviously. <laughs> yeah. this, despite like this being what I know, like the, 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 the phase that I know best and where I want to specialize I do also recognize that it's silly that you could specialize just in entitlements. I've added zero value in the real world, you know, in the physical world of, but like you can make, you can make a bunch of money because navigating this process is so complicated and difficult that it's, it's a real specialization. It requires real skill. Um, so, you know, the more people there are that do what I want to do, which is to specialize in entitlements, that should act as an indicator to the city that they need to make this process easier because you should be able, it should be the builder all like that for most of human history, the person taking it through entitlements was the builder because there was no entitlements. Right, he just like right. went straight to building. Yeah. Um, yeah but now we've kind of like created all this process. This new industry. I'm, uh, yeah. Essentially. Well, I did want to talk about your, uh, your new, uh, venture that you had. Um, you know, you identified a problem that was out there in the market and now you're trying to fix it. So tell us a little bit about BuildStack. What's that all about? Yeah, thanks. So this is uh, something I've been tinkering on. Uh, so again, 
agency, day job, client work. But I like to have a product that I'm working on. I, I consider it like my little garden that I get to work on. That's that's just for me. That's not for a client. So buildstack.co. Um, the reference I like to use, which is which is more like mostly understood just by software people, is there's a website called Built With. And if you go on Built With and you want to build, let's say you want to build a marketplace website. So you want to look to see which tools and coding languages other marketplace websites use. You could plug in like Airbnb.com and it'll tell you their full stack of like, what are they using for hosting? What are they using for for all their infrastructure and architecture and, and whatnot? Isn't that like proprietary? Sort of? No, I mean, in software, you could like, you could scrape the code. You could go into developer tools in your browser and just pull it all. And that's what the guy who built that site did and just make it available to people. So BuildStack is built with for buildings. Um, so the story that I like to tell that kind of led to the idea is when we were going out to tender for the Monza project on St. Clair, when I, when I had my last job with the Benvenuto group, um, we found we were working with a construction manager who was reaching out to the trades that they typically reached out to. Those trades were either not responding at all because they didn't want to do mid-rise because mid-rise has a bunch of challenges, which, which we could talk about. Um, or they were responding with prices that were um, high enough to basically kill the viability of the project. So the idea was that like, we need to go into the long tail of trades, not just go for the name brand guys, but find people who do mid rise in a cost effective way. We just didn't know where to find them. Like we couldn't Google them. Our construction manager was mostly familiar with, with high rise players. We knew that it was possible that these people existed because we saw mid rise being built in worse sub markets than ours. So at one point I, I mentioned, I mentioned this when I saw you at our, at our launch party, I was driving from site to site, largely on Kingston road, reading construction signage on hoarding to figure out like, who's doing the windows, who's doing the formwork, who's doing the mechanical systems and like talking to the people, uh, because I couldn't, I didn't know where to find that. So build stack, you know, not to make it sound like bigger than what it is. It's basically yellow pages for construction trades and, and cool. designers and consultants, it's great, but yeah. it's organized in a way that you could like plug in an address and see like. This is the architect, landscape architect, mechanical engineer, all the way through the construction trades that contributed to that. That's awesome. Project. It's a great idea. I think Ben, that might be a, a good place to end. We're we got to do some rapid, yeah. some rapid fire. So should it, the city of Toronto dictate the sweet mix and or unit sizes for new development? Absolutely not. <laughs> if a room has no windows, can you call it a bedroom? Like legally or just? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, well, I think so too. Okay. Resale house prices are correcting. With your developer hat on, on a scale from one to ten, how worried are you about this? Um, not worried. Caveat: I'm a very junior and inexperienced developer. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, it's a spelling mistake there, so I'm not sure what you're trying to say there, Steve. Because I think you wrote that. Uh, who's a better chief planner, Greg Lintern or Jennifer Keysman? Lintern. You just, it was one letter at a place, man. Like, are you kidding me? <laughs> I, I, I did, I Who is know. the best Twitter account that you couldn't go without following? Couldn't go. Okay. I didn't know where you were. There's one letter. <laughs> I'll say it's a, it's a housing trap. And I hope I'm seeing it's at, it's a housing trap. Um, yeah, yeah, he's awesome. He's, he's probably good. the best new I gotta look the Twitter square. account that's come up. Yes. Okay. Here's, here's a, here's a question getting back to uh, uh, the anti uh, car people. You're on your bike. And you must swerve to avoid a child. Would you choose to get hit by a Dodge Ram going 35 kilometers an hour or a Mini Cooper going 60 kilometers an hour? I think still the Ram going slower. That's always what I think is <laughs> that grinds my gears. You know what?
really grinds my gears. There's people who talk about we need to get all the big trucks and stuff off the road. And I'm like, well, I want my kid not to get hit by a car. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's my goal. If we build a city where people don't get hit by cars, yeah. Not, yeah. we yeah. just take the big ones so you don't die. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, Steve. Are NFTs a scam? <laughs> I think mostly yes. Do you own any? Uh, no, but we 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 do a lot of NFT work for clients. <laughs> Which is not to say that they're scams. I, I, it's like a collectible, right? Is is a Beanie Baby collection frenzy a scam? I don't know. It's just you know, will the price probably correct to something approaching zero dollars? Yeah. <laughs> Fair. What What do you like better, reading books or listening to podcasts? Oh, good question. Uh, could I say both? Does that, does that work? <laughs> I mean, something has to be like 0.1% I, I mean, I, I listen, I spend more hours listening to podcasts. I like to think I read more books, but I, I spend more time listening to What's podcasts. What's your number one podcast in rotation right now? Uh, it's called My First Million, which is, which is a pretty terrible and corny name, but it's like two entrepreneurs riffing about business ideas and stuff that they're working on. Man, I got cool. to write yeah. a bunch write of things down. down. Yeah. Write that down. Should we get rid of the capital gains tax? Uh, we New housing on, a, yeah, so, on, so on housing, for, housing. So yes, as an intermediary measure, we should bring a 1031 type exchange to Canada. And if I if I if I have one goal in influencing federal policy, it'll be to get that done. Is inclusionary zoning going to work? Uh, so Toronto City Councilors like inclusionary zoning because they get to say that they care about affordable housing while killing the viability of development projects. So it'll accomplish both of those things if there are no offsets pr provided to developers. And you think there will be? Answer. I, think I, know, I don't think there will be. I think we're, it's kind of, it is what it is. At some point, land, I think land prices will absorb a lot of the requirement, but there's going to be a lag. And I think it'll lead to less housing being built than if we just never did this thing. And we, we should never should have done this thing. Yeah. So ultimately they, they look good, but it's going to cause less, less, less yeah. product and yeah. higher prices. Yeah. It's, it's a tax on development. Yeah. So you get less of it. Well, that's, uh, that's, I think a good place to, to uh, end off. Well, there's, right? a good, there's a good last question that you didn't ask. <laughs> you is, go for it. Is there a residential developer whose work you, Oh, I thought there was, I thought it was the opposite. I thought it was, I thought it was, is there a res, residential developer whose work you despise? You despise. You can say who you like and despise if you want to. I think Bill Gardner has the best design taste of any Toronto developer. I love his projects. I think yeah. Hallmark is a close second. Um, Jeff? Jeff Hallmark? Yep. Yeah. Who's, who's the worst? Worst? I think Candarell's been putting out some pretty ugly buildings. Like the big guy. You got to go for like a... Uh, yeah, uh, but the, the, the small ones that are ugly, I just don't know their names. Yeah. Like there are these kind of like, you know, pop-up developers that do crap value One engineering thing. to death. Yeah. No. Um, I, think, I think Bill has really great taste. That's good. Yeah, that's a good place awesome. to end off. So... So working, you know, obviously we, 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 we talked a little bit about Twitter. Where, where do they find you on there and, and, uh, shout your, your website, build stack, give us the whole, yeah. give us the whole build stack of your socials. Yeah. Well, everything's discoverable through Twitter. So Chris spoke on Twitter and then yeah, buildstack.co is this thing I'm, I'm working on and, and, uh, yeah, if it's interesting, check it out. Awesome. Well, we appreciate your, appreciate your time. A lot of uh, keep going, man. Mm -hmm. You're very, very well read, well thought, thought guy, and uh, the city needs more people like you. So thank you. Keep be be, be proactive and get into politics. That's <laughs> all we, we, we need someone like <laughs> you. No, no, I want to build. I don't want to talk. <laughs> Despite this, you know, hour and thirty minutes. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, all right. your first next big financing. You yeah. know, you know to call. Cool. <laughs> thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This was awesome. Awesome. Cheers. Hey.